Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Ki Show. I am Nomi Ki Konst. So let's give a standing ovation for our favorite old socialist. As you may know, uh, I asked Mr. Bezos to testify at this hearing. He declined my invitation, and that's too bad. Because if he was with us this morning, I would ask him the following question. And that is, Mr. Bezos, you are worth $182 billion. That's a B. $182 billion. You're the wealthiest person in the world. Why are you doing everything in your power to stop your workers in Bessemer, Alabama, from joining a union so that they can negotiate for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. Nailed it. Bernie, you still got the game. This is the fight of our lifetimes. This is bigger than organizing one warehouse in Alabama. This is bigger than affirming the right to organize in one of those so-called right-to-work states where they still denounce legitimate union campaigns as the work of outside agitators. Bless their racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic little hearts. And that's why the PRO Act is so important. Now, this is bigger. This is much, much bigger than all of that. This is the overdue showdown between the libertarian bro culture of Silicon Valley and, well, the rest of us. This is the moment we draw the line and, and say to Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and even to Jeff Bezos, being rich doesn't make you right. Consumers spending their money with you is not an affirmation of your moral value. Sales are not votes. Winning in the marketplace is not the same as winning an election, whether for government office or for union status. But all these ideas are products of one of the most toxic strands of American capitalist philosophy. Check that. I won't even honor it by calling it a philosophy. The toxic strand of self-justification that the billionaires in Silicon Valley have used to justify their disproportionate wealth and bamboozle others into believing they were some, somehow new and different. They adored Ayn Rand. They bought her bull about the individualists because they were the individualists. This, th th that was not old-fashioned exploitation. That's not what this was. This was the internet, the digital revolution. It was all new. Well, crap. This is Carnegie and Ford hiding behind algorithms. And I'm so proud of the food and commercial workers for taking on this fight to Amazon. And so many others are fighting by their side. Sarah Nelson, the president of the, the uh, CWA AFA, the American Flight Attendance Workers, the official labor leader of the Nomi Key Show, she was in Bessemer yesterday and sent this back. This is the Amazon warehouse. <laughs> and it's got big vote signs everywhere. The parking lot is empty today, but normally there'd be cars and activity everywhere here. They let people have the day off and paid them, you know, cause it's the end of the union election. And so the employer wants to make sure that they know they're taking care of their people. Even though in Birmingham, you can't even rent an apartment for $15 an hour. This is the mailbox that Amazon set up, even though they weren't supposed to. The NLRB told them they weren't supposed to. And then they put it in this tent, like right in front of the front entrance for the workers. Speak for yourself. Mail your ballot here. Major violation. Major, major violation. And it's still here. It's still here. But the, the workers I talked to today are like, you know, they're not having it. Go, Sarah. You know, workers can win this vote at Amazon and we can finally bury Ayn Rand and restore working people to their right for rightful place. 
And with the PRO Act, which will hopefully pass in the Senate, if we pressure our Democrats to vote for it. That is how we will make sure that workers have the right to organize in every single state, even if it's a right to work state in this country. And it will make sure that there are fair elections, labor elections, and that these types of violations won't happen anymore. So go support the PRO Act. Urge your senators to support the PRO Act. Make phone calls. Send out the memes. Do what you have to do online. Make the phone calls. The PRO Act will transform labor in this country. And we have a great show today. We're going to actually start out with one of our favorite uh, historians on labor, on FDR. He's a Marxist historian, of course. Harvey K. Professor Harvey K. is here. And later we have the one, the only Thursday panel. It's uh, Representative Rab and Arun Chowdhury. We're going to talk about today's news. We'll be right back after this break. because he's part of our book club, am I going to force Professor Harvey K to listen to my book club pitch because I forgot to do it? And, and it was very relevant to our opening. Um, I just finished up a conversation with Mackenzie Wark on Capital is Dead, Is This Something Worse?, which talks about how data and information are new form, I shouldn't say new form of capital, it's something different. And it was such a revealing uh, conversation with Mackenzie Work. I the, the book is so easy to read. Uh, it's a great starter book. And it's after, after our opening talking about Amazon and the tech sector, um, I urge all of you to check out the book and join our book club uh, at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Professor Harvey K in the house. It's Thursday. Uh, oh man. Okay. So Professor Harvey K, if you don't know him already, if you don't have his, uh, his, his bio memorized, he is Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. And he's an AFT union member. He is the author of TNS book club entry number one, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. Also, The Fight for Four Freedoms, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and FDR on Democracy and how many more? 21, 21 total? 22? What was the total count no, of books? I, now you're over the top. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just making up numbers. <laughs> <laughs> let's go. Yeah. Let's say 18 and another time will be precise. 21. I'm also a proud owner. I don't even have mine out today. <laughs> Round two. Okay. Big day because... Um, you know, there's there's a lot of conversation right now from coming from the Biden administration about how their <laughs> FDR sit down, no pun intended, <laughs> stand down FDR. We we are better than you. Our legacy in 66 days is already better than your entire legacy of three terms. What on earth are they thinking? Well, you know, the worst thing is it it it, it would be bad enough if only the Biden folks celebrated themselves. But it's that writers in places like the New York Times, both columnists and journalists alike, it seems, and in other places, though not universally, but in all too many places, they're talking as if, as if Biden is not simply the, the resurrection of FDR, or in the domestic sense, the resurrection of LBJ, but we can leave that for a moment, but that somehow he's gone further than FDR had gone. I mean, it's in one sense, the historian in me says, you know, are these people have no sense of history? Do they really know so little? But they actually word their pieces. I mean, this included not simply the like say of, I guess it was David Brooks, so we can expect such foolishness from, but, but the long time, though now former, but the long time labor journalist for the New York Times, Stephen Greenhouse, yeah. the other day, 
in talking about presidents and labor. Um, rightly quoted a friend of mine, uh, Joe McCartan at Georgetown University about FDR being the, the friendliest of presidents to labor, but then went on to say, and I wanna get the words right, went on to say, still at times, FDR's administration deeply disappointed labor, but gives no example whatsoever. And then on the very next page says, I gotta quote it, Roosevelt often pursued the interests of big business he great, despite the fact he greatly expanded workers' rights, blah, blah, blah. The point is that even when, even when they want to say something reasonable, they somehow have to do it. They have to smack FDR. And it's over and over again. It really is the case. And I, well, wait, I actually wait, have a whole pile of stuff. Wait, but, but isn't that a strategy? Aren't they like, okay, well, if we're all going to use FDR as our reference point, then aren't they, they are trying to make him seem obviously more, uh, I mean, I guess, neoliberal or, or however you want to justify it for, for that era, more pro-business uh, so that when Biden is pro-business, he's like, oh, you know, FDR was too. Yeah, well, and, and I'll just, I, I won't leave this question of labor, but I've got to point out today in the New York Times, a writer, a longtime writer and, and book writer and even columnist for the New York Times, Thomas Edsel, mm -hmm. who I recall back in the, I think it was in the 90s, maybe even deeper, was a really progressive writer, really challenging the, the sort of corporate Washington, D.C. status quo. And, and he does write some good pieces. But today, today, and I've got, I got in a few arguments with people today as an example of just how eager everyone is to jump on the Biden Democratic Party bandwagon to the point where they're even willing to literally use words that don't apply he wrote in a piece called Biden wants no part of the culture war the GOP loves. And first he says, according to a rundown by the Center for American Progress of the COVID bills, exceptionally, gener <laughs> What's that? exceptionally generous provisions. I mean, you know, they're setting it up. They're setting it up. So you can imagine McConnell. Let's take, let's, let's suppose I'm yeah, a Republican. I've just read out. the seemingly progressive Thomas Edsel. And I say, and I remember this. So next week when I come after Biden, I say, don't you think the COVID relief bill was generous enough? I mean, mm -hmm. they're already, it's as if they're so eager to celebrate the Biden bill, which by the way, is, a, is wonderful in many respects, that they go overboard in a fashion that will turn the COVID bill, and I'll come back to it in just a second, into almost like this great charity measure on the part of the Biden administration for working people, okay? Because now we come to the next thing. And this is the thing that bugs me no end. It bugged me about the Obamacare question. It bugged me when Obama was running for president and we all know what his presidency entailed. But crucially, the benefits are universal. Well, the benefits are not universal in the COVID relief bill. They are specifically means tested. Right. Okay, now people might say, well, it's almost universal. It's like 85%. The point is, it is either universal or, or it's not universal. Okay, now to come back to the labor stuff, it's the case that this is really important. I asked the other day on Twitter, I, I know I sent this to you. So let's see now, you think Biden will do to Amazon, okay, will do to Amazon. Let's suppose the, the workers vote for the union. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's assume that. It doesn't mean that Amazon will necessarily negotiate in good faith. 
Right, exactly. I mean, that, that's, that's important. That's the next step, yeah. I mean, they have, histo- you know, all these companies, well, not Amazon, they never recognize the union, but they may say, yeah, we recognize the union. And then they spend a year or yeah. more to the point where workers themselves become, you know, like- Exhausted. They've got us nothing, okay? Right, I mean, right. Where, where are we? So back in 1944, during the war, Montgomery Ward was headed, there was a chain store, big company, and, and also a manufacturer of, of many an item, headed by a man named Sewell Avery. And I will note that in 1934, 10 years earlier, Sewell Avery joined with the other half a dozen wealthiest men in America mm-hmm. to launch something called, and I think this came up also when you had Tom Frank on, the American Liberty League, which right. I wrote about in my Four Freedoms book. The American Liberty League was going, went out of its way to try to bring down the Roosevelt administration, either at the elections of 34 or, or as they projected at the election of 30. They failed and they spent millions trying to do it. But these people hated FDR. And as he later said, I welcome their hatred. Well, now it's 10 years later, it's 1944. Sewell Avery over and over again refused to recognize his workers' desire for a union. Hmm. And according to, to the wartime regulations, that was utterly unacceptable. Okay, on top of the fact the National Labor Relations Board had already said you, you, you must do it. So FDR, maybe in part revenge, but what, for whatever reason, he literally ordered American troops into the Montgomery Ward headquarters. Whoa. And they, and they arrested. Oh, my Sewell goodness. Avery. And there's a famous photo on the cover of, of the newspapers of the day of two GIs carrying Avery out, still <laughs> sitting in the chair because he refused to stand up. Now, the story, if you leave it there, seems like a major victory for FDR because, my God, he showed. That's he, amazing. He, yeah. yeah. Now, what happened was apparently when he got, was taken to, to, to prison, he, he went to jail. The fact was that apparently he had some deal with the jailers. The jailers were letting him call in his orders to the company in spite of the fact he was no longer supposed to be the head of the company that <laughs> the US had taken it over. So this was becoming something of an embarrassment to FDR because everyone should realize newspaper publishers did not like FDR, mm-hmm. okay? They did not like him. So they were running these pieces about what an embarrassment for FDR because Sewell Avery is still heading up the company. So FDR said, okay, wait a second. I'm going to order that the workers vote now. You want the union or do you not? And they voted yes, okay, which automatically shut up all of of these publishers, okay? Now the question is, let's suppose, let's suppose they vote for the union. And mm-hmm. Amazon screws around, right? Well, Biden's already said, you know, it's not legal to, you know, to, it's not legal to do certain kinds of things. And I'm trying to imagine Biden, in order to live up to, <laughs> this is not going to happen, <laughs> trying to live up to FDR by, you know, send, nationalizing the, you know, it, what do they call federalizing the National Guard in Alabama and sending them into the Amazon warehouse. Yeah. Or maybe, I don't know if he's still officially the executive in charge oh, no, of any not. fashion business. Oh, I wonder if that's why he stepped down. He was like, oh, he might he arrest me. Guy, right? Wouldn't that be a great- I'm sure event? that's it. <laughs> and, but, or how about this? And the troops carrying him, carry him into the Senate Budget Committee hearing so Bernie <laughs> can interrogate Bernie. him properly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can fantasize, Harvey, but <laughs> right. the reality is, is you got to let the process play out. Like it's his favorite phrase, process, 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 my God. Yeah, right. Um, 
That was a great clip you played of Bernie. I, I just love the guy. God, I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you when someone doesn't show up to a debate, you have two candidates and one of the candidates doesn't show up and you still ask them the questions. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. So why is it, it, it clearly this is a, this is a messaging strategy. Someone has issued these talking points um, or done phone calls with reporters to say, you know, we've actually been more progressive. We've done more than FDR did in his entire three terms. Um, I mean, it's so preposterous. It's so yes. ridiculous on, on the surface. And I just, I don't understand how this is continuing to be like, it's just, it's over and over again. Yes, it's yeah. over and over again. Um, I, I mean, it, it, I, my only thought is it's step one in 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 setting up a situation in which they can say, well, no, even your like, well, like we said, uh, even your your hero FDR uh, aligned with business on these occasions. But I mean, okay, so so there's the labor standard, the Pro Act, for instance. Um, it's it's a fantastic piece of legislation. Uh, absolutely needs to happen. Uh, Biden is is supporting it. That is something that they can hold true and say, yes, if this is passed, if Biden, you know, puts on his Johnson hat, his LBJ hat, uh, and and pushes Mansion and Cinema and any other bad actors in the Demo Democratic Party, the Senate to um, to step up, then okay, then then they can claim the victory. But what are they claiming is the victory right now? What are they claiming that they've achieved? Right. Well, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting point because of this. I mean, if we look. At I'm going to play the historian now for a moment. If we look at the FDR years, the FDR presidency from 1933 until his passing in 1945, elected to the presidency four times, okay, four times. That if his first and his initial actions, the first hundred days became renowned and he, they became renowned because immediately FDR stepped in to literally close the banks to make sure they could reopen. And by the way, people had such confidence in FDR that when the banks reopened some days later, more money went back into the banks than had, than, wow. than had yeah. So, but okay, the other thing is that he signed into law the National um, Industrial Recovery Act, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, this major series of acts. They created the Civilian Conservation Corps. They signed into law the creation of the works, no, the PWA, the Public Works Administration, which would take about two years to get going really because it was huge projects and they did not want to be involved in any kind of corrupt practices. Well, the key thing is this, everyone remembers the national, well, not everyone, but people who bother to pay attention usually remember the National Labor Relations Act. And the reason they do is even now, even now Biden's first move on that first day in his, after his inaugural address was delivered was to throw out Peter Robbie, Peter Robs, I'm forgetting the name, yeah. something like that, who was this lawyer who was, who was definitely lined up with Trump as he was with Reagan years ago, very anti-labor. And the idea they threw him out as a sign that uh, they were going to commit to the labor movement. Well, what FDR did when he signed into law the National Industrial Recovery Act, not simply, he didn't just literally talk about it, he signs into law something that included the right for of workers to organize that's in 1933 everyone forgets this it's as if later he mm -hmm. gets around to it no right away in the first hundred days and that included moreover the first attempt on the part of a, a federal law to create a minimum wage okay which was which was really crucial 
And when he signed at FDR, giving sub signal as to where he was going, said no country, sorry, do that all the time, no company should be allowed to operate in the United States that does not pay a living wage. Now, what happened was the corporations found their way around the law on this occasion. But I do want you to know that two million plus workers stormed, not stormed, but, you know, sort of marched. You can't right say in- that anymore. <laughs> Yeah, right. They marched into the labor movement. Almost overnight, the labor movement grew by, with you know, two million. And then in 1934, there were general strikes around the United States, empowered by workers' desire to be organized and to be recognized. Okay. Then in 1935, FDR is encouraged enough by by labor's push and also by his friend, Senator Robert Wagner of New York State, to sign into law the National Labor Relations Act. And that wasn't simply workers have the right to organize, they created the board to make sure the government would stand behind workers' efforts to do so. Now, the Biden statement back two weeks ago or so, Mm -hmm. his little video for Twitter or something like that, where he said, basically, workers have the right to organize, you can't mess with them, and so on, was a really important step. And I think that the question is to what extent he follows up. And of course, the biggest question is, if are they going to do what needs to be done to pass not only the re-securing of voting rights, but the PRO Act, right? The Protection of the Right to Organize Act. And there, and they wouldn't need to say F, that Biden's gone beyond FDR. What is this? This is like mine is bigger than yours kind of thing. That's crazy. All they need to say is Biden has stood in the tradition of FDR. That's all they got to do. Right. Why belittle the, the greatest president of the 20th century to score points, right? Well, I mean, it sounds very classic cap strategy, strangely enough, is pitting yeah, one against another. It's a very strange messaging yeah. technique. Um so other than the PRO Act, uh, which if it is signed and, 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 and uh, other than that, I mean, is there anything else he can stand on truthfully that could be compared to the legacy of FDR? Maybe even the first hundred days, forget it. Maybe that's what they're trying to do is say in the first hundred days, we've done more. The $1.9 trillion package, which is means tested, as we said, it's not universal. Um, you know, he had to do that. Any president, any president who would have to do that. I would even argue, a Republican would have to do that, given the conditions, the material conditions in our country right now and what's about to happen. We haven't even gotten to, to, to rent, uh, to dealing with, with back rents and uh, student loan debt, of course. I mean, there's so many issues that, that are, are compounded right now that we haven't even brought to the table. And yeah, he- and, I, and I will, a couple of things, as you say that cross my mind. The first one is, this is an act that, 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 whose measures, whose benefits are temporary. This is, they're only through this right. year, as I understand, right? That's exactly. first of yeah. all, okay? <laughs> and, and a relief bill is usually just that. It doesn't make it permanent. Though the tax credits in the mm-hmm. bill for parents um, w- would be significant if they could, definitely significant if they could make that a permanent permanent thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I sent this to, I sent my observations and this uh, Tom Edsel's piece around saying to people, what do you think? And a young friend of mine, 24, actually, I don't mind saying, he won't mind, I say, Kill Brooks over at Jacobin, the producer over there, said to me, what happened to the, what happened to the student debt, you know, question? Okay, my first thought was, well, I mean, they can celebrate this all they want, but they didn't even, they didn't even mobilize enough to push the $15 minimum wage through. I mean, don't, again, I want to make it clear. 
this is a this is a great bill. This is a good act to have instituted. But we have yet to know what they're going to do next. Okay, I mean, we, we haven't had have we had we haven't had a news conference yet, correct? I do no, believe it's. it's uh... <laughs> I think it starts today, tomorrow. Oh, I don't know what it is. Because the big um, question that I have in mind. Great question. I had it debated, but I don't remember what it was. Okay. Well, the big <laughs> question for me, because I think this is going to be the moment where we're going to see how much in the direction of FDR they really want to go, is they have promised every week that as soon as the COVID bill was passed, and now they're on their, I, I guess they're still on tour, right? Their victory tour. They owe the American people an address to Congress, that is Biden-Harris, oh that. Right. Because right now, we don't know where we're going. So, so far we don't have, we have this bill, we know it's gonna be effective for a certain number of months. We never got the 2000, we definitely don't have 2000 a month. Um, students with huge debts, former students with huge debts are waiting to hear what's gonna to happen to them. I mean, over and over, all of these things are coming up. The immigration question is going to definitely come back big time onto the agenda. But I, for me, seriously, I mean, all of this stuff will lead me to ask, will lead me to ask, you're celebrating this man as FDR. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna tell the American people when you go before Congress? Okay, what are you going to tell us? And to what extent, and this is important, and this is really imperative because FDR, as Bernie knew, is if you're going to make things happen, you don't simply do it from the top down. FDR was very clear about something. When he signed all this stuff into law, he would say, new laws, unto them, new laws in themselves do not bring the millennium. Then, okay, it, you're going to have to organize. And he actually sent his cabinet officers out from the Secretary of Agriculture out, you know, over to uh, labor and tell people, you have got to organize if we're going to make these things happen because capitalists were not, re not eager to accept these laws, mm -hmm. okay? They even had their own lawyers say, the laws are not in effect until the Supreme Court says they're in effect. So, but FDR knew. That's, that's basically a threat to yeah. Yeah. Just oh, absolutely. pending absolutely. litigation over and over and over and over right. again. So, yeah. You know, so I'd <laughs> like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I'd spin. like to hear. Yeah. Right. So I'm sorry. I'm talking over you. I apologize. <laughs> there you go. This is no, so, because I'd like to hear. Let me, I will tell you what I'd like to hear in, in, in Biden's speech. All the things I've just referred to, I want him to lay out the agenda and the priorities. And, right. and when he mentions the PRO Act, and he then mentions, and we're going to do everything in our power to, you know, he's already said he's willing to, to see the reform of the filibuster, which goes against the grain of everything he said before. But the question is, are they gonna push it? Are they gonna make it happen? Because voting rights, workers' rights, and everything else that matters of a progressive sort to help put him in the FDR tradition hangs on that. And then I wanna hear him say, and if I, <laughs> everyone tells me that I'm exaggerating, whether FDR ever said it or not, Labor said he said it. FDR was Amazing. supposed to have said, I, if I went to work in a factory, this time it could be I went to a factory or a warehouse, I'd join a union. That's right. what I want, want him to say, okay? Well, he's Scranton Joe. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is, is it unusual for a president who's just elected with an economic, uh, pandemic economic situation like this, is it unusual for them not to present their case to America on day one? I mean, he, he's spoken to the country, but he hasn't laid out his case to America. Right. Um, is that unusual? It seems. It, it, well, yes, 
essentially it is. We're used to the fact that when a president's reelected, he will give the State of the Union address. Course, We're yeah. used to the fact every year it's called the State of the Union address. Mm -hmm. There is no obligation when you first take an office to do that. However, in the face of a crisis such as this, it would be un unimaginable that Biden would not go before Congress and the nation in the yeah. age of television and the web and all of that. And the world will watch. And that's mm -hmm. how significant it will be, because seriously speaking, the world is waiting to hear what this president wants to do in the face of fascists abroad, fascists at home, conservatives in the Congress and well, fascists in the Congress. Fascists too, in the Congress, see, yeah. Okay. And we and by the way, let's not forget that people are mobilized in a fashion. I mean, Black Black Lives Matter, the labor movement, I, folks are are ready and willing to make noise and i think there is this holding of breath right now to right. see to see what kind of noise we make that's right so let's um let's pivot to lbj because you know i love to compare him to lbj or want yeah. him no, to I be like I, I don't it's not that i compare him to but he is a creature of the senate and he should have some skills that you know lbj had uh yeah like i don't know twisting joe manchin's arm which he's done a little little <laughs> little bit of or uh, or politely uh non-touching twisting <laughs> kirsten cinema's arms <laughs> he, he's more likely to massage her shoulders but whatever um <laughs> No, I mean, but 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 the reality is, is that it's um, it's peculiar to me that he is waiting for everyone to come to him or the process to be played out. It just it just seems it's like a stalling tactic. He's actually speaking right now. If you're seeing me, um, uh, pause oh, for is. a second. Do we want to, okay. Dorsey? Do we can we play that? Can we play him speaking? <laughs> me? It's like it's <laughs> like we're on CNN. <laughs> we needed a whole of government approach. So I directed Jeff Zients, the coordinator of our COVID-19 response, to put us on a war footing, and I meant that in a literal sense, to get us on track to truly beat this virus. And I'm proud to announce that tomorrow, 58 days into our administration, we will have met my goal of ministering 100 million shots to our fellow Americans. That's weeks ahead of schedule. And even with the setbacks we faced during the winter storms. And there's another big step on the path to checking the uh, putting checks in pockets and shots in people's arms. When we crossed the 50 million doses just three weeks ago, I told you that every time we hit the 50 million mark, I'd update you on our progress. So here's where we are today. Eight weeks ago, only 8% of seniors, those most vulnerable to COVID-19, had received a vaccination. Today, 65% of people aged 65 or older have received at least one shot, and 36% are fully vaccinated. And that's key, because this is the population that represents 80% of the well over 500,000 COVID-19 deaths that have occurred in America. We have nearly doubled the amount of vaccine doses that we distribute to states, tribes, and territories each week. We have gone from one million shots a day that I promised in December, before we were even sworn in, to an average of two and one-half million shots a day. 
outpacing the rest of the world significantly. And here's how we accomplish this. Using the power given to a president under the Defense Production Act. There you go. We expedited critical materials in vaccine production, such as equipment, machinery, and supplies. We work with vaccine manufacturers to speed up the delivery of millions more doses and brokered a historic manufacturing partnership between competing companies who put patriotism and public health first. These steps put us on track to have enough vaccine, enough vaccine supply for every adult American by the end of May, months, months earlier than anyone expected. And we stood up or supplied more than 600 community vaccination sites that are administering hundreds of thousands of shots per day. We launched the Federal Pharmacy Program, which has allowed millions of Americans to get a shot at one of 1,000, or excuse me, one of 14,000 local pharmacies in this country, the same way they get their flu shot. And for folks who aren't near a pharmacy or mass vaccination center, we've supplied more than 500 mobile clinics, <laughs> like pop-up sites or vans, meeting people where they are, meeting people where they are. We developed nearly, we deployed nearly 6,000 federal personnel, including. So FEMA, let's um, let's meet this for a second. Military, yeah. Because we just got a little bit of an update that uh, he basically just spends the next. Where this, this is not fully live. He basically spends the next four minutes uh, or a few minutes talking about how they distributed the vaccine. Okay. I just had an idea, though. It occurred yeah. to me when he mentioned the Defense Production Act. Yeah. If maybe there's some clause in there which would allow him to send troops into Amazon. And <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag arrest Bezos. <laughs> That's yeah, what right. we got to do. Sorry, I didn't mean to take us away. It's just I had, before I forgot. You know? <laughs> no, I took us away. All right. So how can how can he uh, channel LBJ more? What, what would LBJ do in this moment? OK, so. LBJ took took uh, took office November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, on in the wake of of Jack Kennedy's assass John Kennedy's assassination, and he went before Congress. And by the way, an assassination is a pretty critical moment in history. People were were you know just dumbfounded in a certain yeah. way. What happens next kind of thing. Right. And it was the middle of the Cold War and, and people weren't quite sure. And we shouldn't forget that it was only a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So there's all of this. But LBJ went before Congress and he laid out an agenda, what they were going to do. How um, soon after? This is the next was day? Within, I think it was five days later, something oh. like that. Yeah. And by the way, the, everyone remembers the agenda because it began with the civil rights question. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and I'm, I may surprise people, but LBJ always said that he knew he was more liberal than Kennedy. And, and, and if you knew anything about LBJ, you would believe that. Hmm. And if you knew anything about Kennedy, you would believe it too. Okay. <laughs> but, but, the, but the interesting thing that we forget, and this is not to take us away from Biden, but so the second item on the agenda was to fulfill Kennedy's promise of cutting taxes on business, I believe it was. And this was a terrible precedent at that time. Republicans for many years afterward would refer to Kennedy's idea right. of cutting taxes to validate their own efforts to do so. But, but the point was that LBJ did offer, in spite of his, you know, I believe that 
a younger Biden could give a good speech, even though some of it might have been plagiarized. Okay, I don't know if everyone knows my reference there, but the fact yes, is that the, the Neil Kinnock speech from his yeah, presidential right. campaign in eighty what year was eighty eight? Yeah, the eighty eight election yeah. season was that. Yeah, but the thing is, LBJ <laughs> get out of that not, race because of it. Yeah. yeah, LBJ was not known was not known for as a dynamic speaker. His Texas drawl really sort of slowed things down. But actually, he gave remarkable speeches because he could speak of he could speak somehow to Americans so that they fully understood. He was very clear about where he was going. Um, the, the tra let's not forget somebody's bound to just tweet me and say, "What the hell's wrong with you?" LBJ took us into Vietnam far, far more deeply than Kennedy had taken us into Vietnam, and and we know the number of deaths. You know, American deaths were 75,000 and the total deaths might have been up to a million in Vietnam as a consequence. But the point was that LBJ was a progressive, a decided progressive on domestic, on domestic affairs, except for one thing. And this is, why, this is why I hope Biden does not become LBJ on this one issue. LBJ told Walter, not Walter, sorry, George Meany, the head of the AFL-CAO, and Walter Ruther, who was the head of the industrial section and the UAW, mm -hmm. that he had an agenda. He laid out the agenda. It had to do with uh, civil rights, fighting poverty, et cetera, et cetera, Medicare, Medicaid. And somehow or other, labor's desire to reform the labor law, the Taft-Hartley law of 1947. The idea was to liberate labor, to be able to go into the South and organize. In other words, to block the right to so-called right to work laws from, from stymieing them, okay? And the problem was that LBJ promised them that they would do that as like number five on the, on the, on the list. Uh, and, and what happened was it was 19, winter of 65, 66. We're already going deeply into Vietnam. The, money, the point was that LBJ's political capital was running out. And it was, I believe it, it was one of, or the only filibuster that LBJ failed to break. And as mm -hmm. a consequence, no labor law reform occurred. Mm -hmm. So if Biden does not secure the PRO Act with labor having his back and the Democrats bowing to that ambition, then, I, then one could talk about Biden being LBJ in a way we don't want him to be LBJ. It's interesting. So if if LBJ had organized work to organize the South, he, while if he, he signed opened the, the door to doing if it, it yeah. if it opened the door to doing it while he he signed the Civil Rights Act, he wouldn't have lost the South for generations potentially. Potentially, yeah. he he himself didn't. Yeah. Well, the main thing. Does that make sense? Better way. Well, the better way to look at it would be this. Let's go even bigger. The fact is. The fact is there would have been a hell of a lot more struggles going on in the South alongside of civil rights. And since most African-Americans were workers, it would have right. literally been a combined civil rights, labor rights kind of thing. American That's history would have changed wow. radically. That is amazing. So speaking of that, Liu Kang asks a question, says, speaking of LBJ, the Democratic Party hasn't won a majority of white voters in a presidential election since LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act. Care to speculate why? <laughs> 
what? racism. <laughs> Gee, no, well, I wonder why. <laughs> Gerrymandering, racism. I mean, it's not. Well, it's yeah, hard, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I hesitate to just say racism because because class was so fundamental to those things at the time. Um, but race clearly race kept us from having national health care in the late 40s in many ways. Hmm. OK, that also has to do with the South, mm -hmm. because look, if, if he if Truman had followed through, well, he did. Truman wanted national health care. He picked it up from FDR's desire to have Social Security included and the Economic Bill of Rights speech of 44. Mm -hmm. And I won't keep us long. I know you've got Arun and um, Rep Rab coming. So but the thing is that. After when Truman lost the Congress in 46, which is a whole labor question in itself, we could have gotten into the, the Republicans were clearly going to block all of the reforms that FDR wanted to pursue and Truman had promised to pick up on and capital mobilized hmm. against national health care. And so, too, did the Southern Democrats who came to be known as Dixiecrats. Mm -hmm. The Northern capitalists did not want to empower workers. OK, and they mm -hmm. were prepared to offer benefits to health care benefits to workers in order to avoid national health care. Interesting. And then the Southern Democrats, this will be my last point, they did not want national health care in spite of the fact that white workers might well have wanted national health care, but the powerful in the South did not want it because they did not want to integrate the hospitals. Oh, yes, this is a big, right. Yep. Now there's yep. the racial thing just used to, to literally destroy. American history would be so so different today. That's all I can say. Wow. Those two, just those two things that happened. Yeah. Professor Harvey K, love having you on. Never enough time. Love, love joining you. Hopefully we can do another special soon. Maybe there'll be, there'll be some breaking news and we can jump on and just go for an oh, hour. Happily. You know, happily, <laughs> just ask. I'm, I'm here. Just have Ruthie give me a call. I'm all ready. <laughs>
explaining his rationale for murdering. Um, like it was just some sort of affliction of this, like, oh, he was just addicted to sex. And so this is why he did it, blah, blah, blah. So he's getting a lot of pushback. Well, uh, amazing people on the internet found this. Let's put that up there. And he was pretty much fed up and then kind of at the end of his rope. And, um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him. And this is what he did. In case you guys can't see that. And for those listening on audio, uh, this sheriff had a shirt that said COVID-19 and it said imported virus from China. Yeah, uh, think he should step down. Uh, not that this is going to fix any situation, but I'll start with you, Rip Rob. What <laughs> yeah, I think that's a safe bet. Yeah, well, let's let's have him step down and let's let's take it a little further and have uh, conversations about how law enforcement um, historically and. Um, um, systemically has been connect, connect, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> connected to systems of oppression and white supremacy. Um, it has been an extension. When uh, folks, uh, uh, exclusively white people, uh, came into my office in Harrisburg two years ago for Second Amendment Day, and they surrounded me talking about my votes on, on gun issues, and they asked, is this you? Did you support these, these anti-gun bills? And I said, I did. I told them, listen, I'm a, um, I'm a black man whose family comes from the South. And I assure you, I support the Second Amendment. And I don't know many black Southerners who don't have multiple guns because we have to protect ourselves from white racist people, many of whom work in law enforcement, so we could entrust the police. And he had nothing to say. Wow. He had nothing to say. He was not prepared. He was about to, he was, he was expecting me to be some kind of urban liberal who says, oh, I'm against the existence of guns and we need to take people's guns. I'm like, no, my family has had guns for generations because it was our responsibility to, to protect our families and our property when our own government systemically uh, precluded us from all the other uh, legal routes that uh, our white counterparts had under force of law and cultural practice. And so, you know, this, <laughs> this idea that, um, uh, that law enforcement um, is neutral or is, is uh, equally responsible for protecting all communities is a fallacy, is a myth that never existed in the 321 years of policing um, in this Commonwealth, in Pennsylvania, which started literally in the year 1700. It has always been there to uphold the social order that was dictated by white supremacist values and priorities. And property. And property, which is related, right? Because property, properties, uh, the laws around property related to um, white patriarchy. Mm -hmm. right? And in mm -hmm. fact, I, I made this statement recently with our progressive district attorney at a press conference. Um, and I was saying that until recently, it was legal in Pennsylvania to rape your own spouse because it wasn't considered rape if you were married to the person, which of course is really means that men could rape women who lived under the same household who happened to be married to them because they were an extension of their property until recently. I think it was only within the past 30 years. So within our lifetimes, oh, yeah. that was, and so if you're enforcing those laws that are inherently right. uh, misogynistic, they're inherently racist, then you are complicit in that. And if you don't speak up 
from the inside, like I do as an elected official. I can tell you, Harrisburg, uh, City Hall, uh, you know, the Capitol Hill are uh, infected by these diseases, right? Um, if I don't say that and I don't then act on it through legislation and other things that I do, then I am complicit. Yes. And the same, whole, same is for law enforcement. This is what's, what's so frustrating about the situation. After the national dialogue that we have had over the last year surrounding law enforcement and, and race, uh, with the uprisings over the summer, with storming the Capitol and seeing how people in the Capitol were organizing with those outside and the off-duty cops showing up, I am, and, and, and so much that has happened in Georgia itself with a horrifying police department, um, it, 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 it's, it's mind boggling that like, we're still having this conversation and nothing has happened from a legislative aspect anywhere in this country, anywhere in this country, whether it's defund the police or holding, you know, stronger reforms if you wanna go the neoliberal route, whatever it is, Basically, nothing has happened. I mean, Iran, what is it going to take for the spectrum? I mean, you are in the political the, the political movement industry. What does it take mm -hmm. to have real accountability, real reform if people want to go the reform route? What is it going to take if it hasn't, If I mean, after all of this? I mean, seriously, I'm asking, like, how do we, but I mean, as, as, no, as a, I know. As I a movement, think, I don't I'm think it's like, in the messaging. Yeah. I don't think it's in the messaging. I don't think it's in, uh, even in the movement part of it. I, I think, it, you know, I think if you take something as simple as say something like background checks on guns, talk about something that, you know, that anyone, people who own guns, the people who Rep Rob's talking about his family and also the people who surrounded his office can all basically agree on is that we have something like that, that most Americans don't, uh, don't, don't want. Certain trade associations, certain people who are rich don't want this. And the way our system works when we have the don't have the, the, the courage to confront things like the filibuster is that with a small bought minority, you can prevent progress from happening. You can prevent the richest country in the world from enacting things that every other industrialized nation does. You just need a certain percentage and it's enough that you can buy. So we need serious mm. uh, electoral reform and we also need uh, our people who actually manage to get in power. The theme of this program, which is to be called wielding power with the three of us, uh, <laughs> people need to take that power and wield it effectively because if you don't, we will be, we're, we are a state that is captured by a minority. Right, Just right. like, you know, we would talk about countries in the Balkans and stuff, but this is us. Yeah. But what do you have? I mean, every city in this country is, is there's a Democratic lawmaker, many of whom are pro supposedly pro progressive. And, you know, de Blasio in itself, like, with exception to three or four things, he's actually fundamentally been way more progressive than any other mayor in the last 40 years, probably including Dinkins, um, given this state. But he's beholden. His own daughter was doxxed by the NYPD. What is it going to take, Rep. Rab? Like, there has to be something. Okay, so I, I have a couple of answers. The first one is in the form of a question. Um, when are we gonna ban fax machines? And the answer is we don't have to because it's a trash technology and it's yeah. been replaced by much better technology to communicate. I, I defied uh, Harrisburg, uh, the state cap, when I had my uh, business cards. I said, remove the fact, I don't want anyone to fax me anything ever. Okay. 
Um, it had its place for a very short period of time. And in the history of, uh, in, in human history, that's how I want modern policing to be, like the fax machines. Like, listen, they tried this, they tried this shit for 320 years, it's crazy. It didn't work. Then, because they didn't realize that the real power is in community safety. When communities take control and have the resources, they have social services and they have all the things that build community wealth and connectedness and all the things that keep us truly safe, right? So what's gonna happen is twofold. One is we have to destroy the uh, police industrial complex, which mm -hmm. is um, the Fraternal Order of Police. Um, they were given special powers in Pennsylvania in 1968. Does that year remind you of anything? <laughs> but it's not a coincidence. A few little things. Yeah, so they have weaponized um, this fake union to protect the worst of the worst. So that can be done legislatively. And with 102 votes in, in our House and 26 mm -hmm. in the Senate, eventually we will strip that down. That will be, we were more likely to do that under democratic control when there's the hue and cry from the masses like the summer of 2020. So I'm very confident that we could do that. That's on the electoral side. But in terms of what we need to do to protect ourselves and not depend mm -hmm. on law enforcement that has um, been infected by this legacy of white supremacy and patriarchy and misogyny, um, don't sell soap to people who don't wash. We can't expect someone who wears a t-shirt like that, who promotes stuff like on social media to be in charge of our, all of our safety because he's more concerned about this poor white man who had a bad day and drove past, I don't know, countless strip joints to go yeah. specifically to a place where there are Asian American women. Okay, mm -hmm. and the fact that he doesn't know that and can't connect the dots means that he's part of the problem. So we have uh, programs like the STARS program in Denver. My colleague Leslie uh, Herod and others put that forth in Denver. We're seeing how effective that'll be in terms of um, uh, 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 reallocating resources to where they need to go so that the police are not overburdened with responsibilities they're not really set up um, to do. Right. We have the Hoots program in this, uh, Washington State, I believe. Where is it? Oregon. I think it's Oregon. Um, that does something similar for years. So if we invest in what actually works, instead mm -hmm. of having knee-jerk reactions, saying we need more cops on the street or we need so-called community policing, whatever that means, um, then we can actually see what works. And when people see that it works, they're going to say, okay, I'm not afraid of that anymore. Let's invest in that. And here's the quiet thing. There are a lot of cops who never signed up yeah. to um, be to social act, workers, to, yeah, to, to be uh, deputized by ICE, to, to yeah. tackle uh, large teenagers with um, intellectual disabilities. Um, like nobody wants to be in that position. They're not saying this is what I became a, a cop for. Now, many folks wanted to be a cop for very nefarious reasons, but there are folks who want to be a cop because maybe that's part of their family culture. They have a very a different perspective on what they can do, but no one thinks I want to do a lot of paperwork and I want to put myself in this line of fire in ways that are not really about what policing was ever supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. Aran? But I feel like we're talking about this, like we're getting close to some, the way that you're premising this question, Nomi, is like we're getting close to some sort of tipping point and, yes. and we're approaching there and you're wondering how high we get. And right. when you show me this clip, that's like not what I think. I think what rocket fuel the talented Mr. Trump was, you know, for white supremacy in general and how much farther we are and how 
people who would have said this stuff quiet 20 years ago are saying it out loud now and how the way he mispronounces China, you know, have such like a huge footprint. And so to me, it just sort of shows how deep and how wide the rot is. And when we're looking around for all those cops who got in it for the right reasons, it's like, you know, I think we will find less of them than we think just statistically based on the fact that now we have a better look under the floorboards and I don't think we like what we see. And they're being radicalized too. It's not just that yeah. suddenly folks are, are yeah, coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, we're farther apart. I mean, yeah, things are people... moving the wrong direction, I would say. Like the curve is going the wrong way. Right, and, and you can't talk about good cops who um, remain complicit in a, exactly. in a infected system, right? And I, I, I tell anyone in law enforcement, the standard I have for you is the standard I have for me as an elected official. There's a high level of transparency and accountability. You can access every email. You yeah. can see exactly where I am, all my votes, everything I legislate, uh, how much money I make, where I put money. All that stuff is readily available to the entire word, world. Um, so we have to, cons when we talk about modern policing, we have to use a better analogy than good apples. It's bad. We have to talk about a toxic barrel. Yes. Policing is a toxic barrel. Yeah. We need to build, barrel we need to buy a whole new barrel that is radically different than how we, we uh, process uh, policing and safety today because it's a myth. So, Dorsey, can you put up that? There's a clip um, related to this. I just want to show uh, new footage out from, from the Capitol. While we're putting that up, uh, there was a question from Liu Kang saying, how do we go about getting municipalities to discontinue their, their police union contracts or for their civil suits to be paid from their pensions? So this is ultimately the tipping point that I'm talking about. If you can't get effing Mayor de Blasio, whose daughter was doxxed by... Yeah, if you can't get him, then what, what is, like, what are they so... What do they have on him? I mean, I can't think of anything else other than like, what do they have on him? They've already doxxed his daughter. What I, is? So I I, I can't you speak can for him, and um, but I can tell you that in Philadelphia, which is the uh, the most incarcerating sit major city in the world, um, that there is mov movement afoot. Oh goodness. What are we looking at? This is just, re this is part of the uh, uh, Capitol insurrection. It's just being replayed on. It. What is that? The FBA, it seems to be. That's a fire extinguisher. Yeah. Fire, yeah. Oh, he's, he, oh, he's, wow. Just hosing down law enforcement. He's hosing down law enforcement. Um, probably because he is law enforcement or right. who it's knows? I mean, either they're, they're, you know, they're, they're cosplaying or, yeah, anyways. Um, and that's him, huh? Or allegedly. Yeah. Uh, no, but this is from the FBI, and they're saying, if you know this person, uh, to call. So, yeah, if you know this person, call. And, and look, you know, the people who've been reporting folks yes, have right. been, um, quote, unquote, friends, relatives of these people. And here's the thing. They're, they're pretty much all white. Right. And <laughs> overwhelmingly male. And the people who are reporting them are folks who are probably not that surprised. We heard about that with someone recently. They, I was like, oh yeah, this person was doing this and we're not surprised. This is how he's operated on college campus. You know, no surprise. Mm -hmm. this, this is what I always say, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before on the show, that it, it, silence is complicity in a very real sense because 
Black people can't come into those households, can't come into those neighborhoods and those conversations. It changes radically just with us showing up. There need to be white people talking to white people and say, this has to stop because yeah. that's the only people they're going to listen to. Right? So and, I, I, yeah. I want to give an anecdote right now. Um, I don't care because I'm putting on a blast. So I have to practice what I preach. I had lunch with a friend of mine yesterday who uh, is of Mexican and Greek descent. She grew up in Mexico. So she's got a little bit of an accent, whatever. This is important to the story. So she was telling me about somebody that we know from the Greek community who um, has been ultra Trumpian since I've, I've known him since I was born. And he owns many businesses. Uh, and his behavior got so outrageous that a group of of his friends started to push him out of the circle, stopped doing business with him, started a petition. Um, when I say Trumpian, I mean aggressively like the Capitol, like if, if he could have had that opportunity to do this. Major business owner, they started a, a petition. They had to shut down their website. His business partners pulled out. They, everybody was embarrassed. And I know that that sounds aggressive, but this is why they think they're being canceled because their behaviors are actually, some are being held accountable or they're seeing others being held accountable. And they think that's cancel culture when you're just being held accountable for your white supremacy. So I, I mean, if you can do what they did to him uh, and she helped organize it because he said something about immigrants. She goes, I have an immigrant. like, it was amazing. It was an amazing story. So um, anyways, I, I want to switch uh, gears real quick. It, it's similar. Uh, and Ron, feel free to chime in. Rep uh, Chip Roy of Texas. Great guy. Great guy. Mm. Uh, during a hearing on discrimination and violence against Asian Americans said this. Let's play this clip. My concern about this hearing is that it seems to want to venture into the policing of rhetoric in a free society, free speech. Um and away from the rule of law and taking out bad guys. Yeah, as I was saying, cancel culture, taking on free speech, they don't want to be held accountable. Arun? Uh, I mean, I think that's right. And what you see here is a legislator who is not particularly worried about what he's saying. This wasn't like a huge performance. This wasn't a huge calculated crisis managed pre-planned thing. This is business as usual from, you know, uh, from, from a racist representative. And that's what scares me, you know, is that we've had the summer we had. Uh, we've had some real community building. We've had information. We've plunged into the consciousness of America. And is that tipping point that you keep asking for coming or not? Right. Do we have enough momentum? I don't know. Let's play the rest of the clip real quick. We had a little bit of a glitch. I would also suggest that the victims of cartels moving illegal aliens deserve justice. The American citizens in South Texas that are getting absolutely decimated by what's happening at our southern border deserve justice. The victims of rioting and looting in the streets last week, businesses closed, burned last, I'm sorry, last summer, deserve justice. Um, we, did, we believe in justice. Oh, all the people at the southern border, not, not the ones in cages, not the babies separated from their parents will never be able to find them again. The who? I've been in the southern border. Who? The Minutemen? They, just, they are, so, oh yeah, those, those infants, they're really coming for you. Are you effing kidding me, man? Chris? Yeah. <laughs> Rap. Um, this, this, this is an extension of my state legislature. This is my every day. God, There's nothing you're going to show me. There's nothing you're going to show me that I haven't seen before. Just on Tuesday, we debated a bill 
that came out of the Judiciary Committee on which I serve that made it illegal to um, um, uh, project various fluids onto law enforcement officers, only law enforcement officers. So it, um, urine, feces, or saliva. I don't mean I have questions, but we'll keep them to ourselves. <laughs> so it, it, was, it, was the, it was literally saliva, uh, feces, urine, and uh, there was specific mention of um, folks with HIV. And so it purposely and knowingly oh God. Um, provided um, misinformation of people uh, who are HIV positive and how these things are contracted. And even if you take out that utterly um, um, uh, bigoted language, you're, you're limiting free speech because you are not, it, because the bill did not say you knowingly did it, but that you did it. So if you inadvertently are too close to a law enforcement officer, or frankly, vice versa, mm -hmm. right? Law enforcement officer is in your face and you are shouting, which is your right. Um, and he claims that, that you did that. It doesn't have to prove that you meant to do it. That, that is obviously going to shut down um, your First Amendment rights. God, and, that's also so yeah. insidious. It sounds like a smart way to like in the next pandemic when there's protests to be like, you know, normally we like this kind of thing, but it's against the law for a good reason. You're putting law enforcement at risk. Right. Interesting. Right. So this, this, is, this is normalized. And also our districts um, in Pennsylvania, you know, it's the largest full-time state legislature in the country. We represent around 63,000 people. And for me, that's two and a half neighborhoods in, in an urban area, right, Philly. But for in rural areas, you, it could represent two counties 100 times the size of Philadelphia, literally. Right. Um, but the way they cut them up is so that they're ideological islands. So their base is very comfortable with this language. And remember how I say, no matter what your first issue is, whatever you care most about, environmental justice, gender equity, whatever, your, your second and third things must be electoral reform and media reform. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think all of us would agree on that. Arun, final thoughts? I mean, I, look, I think that it's sort of hard to take a look around 55 or however many days it's in and, and see where, we at, where we're at post-Trump. Um, but the more you look around, the more it isn't that Trump wrecked the store, the more it really is that he just you know, overturned the stones and let the worst creatures out. And I just, I think it's just gonna take a lot more. I'm not sure we're on track to even sort of contain the damage, even then to build on it. And these conversations sometimes leave me wanting, wanting more. Yeah, I mean, and it would be incredible if Biden had a plan. I mean, if he could come out with, vocally come out with a plan to take on extremism in this country, I mean, that alone, that conversation alone would be transformative. It was emotional speech time yes, today and yesterday, right. and, we, and we didn't get one. And, I, I, you know, I'm a little yeah. disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. We got the, uh, the vaccine rollout information, which was great, but it was like 20 minutes of logistics. Thanks. <laughs> Rep. Rab, final thoughts? Uh, we just have to continue having these, these conversations and uh, look towards systemic solutions to systemic problems. We're not gonna symptom chase our way out of this. Yeah. We're not going to, to have all the bad guys um, 
step down, right? Because it, these are structural things that need to be addressed. And we, if we don't know that they're structural, if we don't talk about the history and the politics behind them and the words that have been used and the policies, then we're, we're just going to be playing whack-a-mole. Exactly. Well said. All right, guys, Arun, Rep. Rab, always grateful to have you. Uh, Arun, it's probably past dinner time. Enjoy your dinner. I don't know how late. A little earlier this time because of our, our uh, daylight oh, state difference. So it's actually only like 9 p.m. now, you know? So the Germans eat early though, right? They're not the Germans like the Germans are Greeks. early eaters. They're not like the Italians or the Greeks. Or yeah. the Greeks, yeah. We're, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about it. I was like, could I go to Greece and film the show from Greece? And then I was like, no, because it would be like 11 o'clock and that would be dinner time in Greece. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, guys, have a good week. <laughs> See you next week. Yeah. Some shout outs. We have Pete from Oakland. Okay, Nomiki, you win. I'm signing up for your book club today. Yay. Also, just got to show you love uh, on your favorite day of the week. Happy Thursday. Be well. I say it's my favorite day every day, don't I? Don't tell the other days. <laughs> uh, thank you to Silver Ball Stud, Jesse James 702, and Nug Wrangler, who all recently subscribed at Tier 1 on Twitch. Thank you, guys. JL, thank you, Nomiki, for bringing awareness to this hate crime. Trump using COVID-19 as a slur against China contributed to the rise of hate crimes against Asian Americans within the last year. Oh, absolutely. Um, I personally know people who've been affected, whose parents, uh, Helen Hong actually was on the show last week. Her father, just a few days ago, uh, was, was beat up. Um, it's very real. Uh, Sam Talarico says, thanks for all you do, Nomiki, to fight corruption and to keep us informed. It is a team effort. Trust me, a lot of people behind this project, but thank you. appreciate you. JKR Dozer, thanks for the love. Liu Kang, we already asked your question, but just want to give you another shout out. Thank you for the love. And Kyler Asado says, we need inequality media or Gravel Institute style YouTube videos for history lessons that Professor Harvey K drops on us. He actually just did one for Gravel. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but uh, that is the truth. We're gonna. We hope we are, we're gonna do a few more explainers. I think um, in the near future, but it's it's a lot of production, uh, and they take a lot of time. So hopefully we'll be able to do some of that. All right, everybody on Twitch and YouTube, thank you for mixing it up, and Midi Docs and Mario for working those algorithms, and our YouTube mods, Bob C, Choke and the Orb, and Chuck Diesel. Always grateful to you. And over at Twitch, Nightbot, <laughs> Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Our Means, and Nug Wrangler. Thanks for keeping the chat room troll free. We got a few more here. Oh, Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. Anarcho Bidenism is not better than FDR LBJ. True that. All right, guys, we will see you tomorrow for Femme Friday. Be well, stay in solidarity. <laughs>